Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. In this episode, I had the privilege of interviewing Jason Porterfield, author of the new book, Fight Like Jesus. I highly recommend the book because even though I like apologetic books in regard to nonviolence, this isn't really just an apologetic book. It's actually a book that contextualizes nonviolence into a much broader scope because it, it takes a look at how Jesus does justice and nonviolence throughout Holy Week. There are a number of times in this interview that you're going to hear how important understanding this whole context of, of Holy Week and nonviolence is, because there are some questions that I ask Jason, which, you know, you could give a general apologetic proof-first answer, but what Jason is able to do is to take a look at it, uh, at the question in a broader context of Holy Week and, um, you know, exemplars from the life of Christ. So it's a, it's a really fantastic contextualization and setting um, for discussing the apologetic of nonviolence and even more importantly, the, the lifestyle of nonviolence. All right, so without further ado, here is the interview with Jason Porterfield. Yeah, so I, uh, I started reading your book just actually a couple weeks ago um, before it, uh, or after it came out. Um, but I didn't, I didn't pick it up right away, even though I saw a lot of it on my Facebook um, and a lot of advertisements. It was, it was very well advertised. But I was like, you know, I've, I've read so much about nonviolence. Um, not that I didn't trust you because I'd had conversations with you before and I was really impressed with you. But I was like, I don't need to pick this up because I've, I've read plenty of other books. Um, but I'm glad that I, I eventually did because when I picked it up, um, even though there there were some angles that I had um, definitely heard before uh, and studied in regards to nonviolence. I really loved your approach to um, to, to Holy Week, um, especially because we're coming up, up on Holy Week, but also just because it it I don't know it, it made that more powerful for me. And I, and I know in some of uh, the things that I've seen you, some of the interviews I've heard from you before, you kind of talk about that as well, the, the kind of power um, that you noticed in that. So would you just briefly talk about your, your book, talk about who you are, and explain what, what got you thinking along this route? Sure. Yeah. First off, thanks, Derek, for, for having me on your podcast. So the book's called Fight Like Jesus, How Jesus Waged Peace Throughout Holy Week. Uh, myself, back at the start of 2007, I joined an international network of Christian communities uh, called Servants, and everyone in Servants feels called to live and minister among the urban poor. Historically, that was in slums of some of the megacities of Southeast Asia. Um, but back in 2007, when I joined, they had growing interest from North Americans to join. It was started out of New Zealand back in the early 80s. And so they wanted to blur this line between home and mission field, this false dichotomy, and say, how do we live out the principles and values that we've tried to do in the slums of Asia? What would that look like in a Western context? So it was actually January 1st, New Year's Day, I moved into Canada's poorest urban neighborhood to help start a community there. And that community is called the Downtown East Side. It, it's quite small. It's, it's just four by eight city blocks. But on, on any given night, it's home to, on average, 5,000 neighbors struggling with pretty uh, strong drug addictions, um, 1,200 
experiencing homelessness and over 900 women trapped in prostitution. So I knew that when I moved there, but I that was about the extent of my homework. And so I was blindsided just a couple of weeks after I arrived. Uh, the jury trial began in a nearby courthouse for, for Robert Picton, the man we would all soon learn was Canada's deadliest serial killer. So over the span of about the previous 10 years, he would periodically drive into the downtown east side, pick up a woman engaged in prostitution, take her back to his farm and kill her. And so by the time of his arrest, actually, as he uh, later confessed actually to an undercover cop posing as a, as a cellmate, he had butchered and fed to his pigs the bodies of 49 women, most of whom were from my neighborhood. So, you know, needless to say, my neighbors, they were devastated. They were angry. They were scared. And, you know, I moved there because I thought of myself as a peacemaker. In other words, I, I believed God was my vocation that God was calling me to was was to contend for the flourishing of this beautiful yet broken community. But it didn't take long before my neighborhood's brokenness broke me. The drugs just seemed so powerful, the poverty so pervasive, and the despair from all those murders. It just left my soul gasping for air. So, so one day I dragged myself to church, and it turned out to be Palm Sunday. And just like at most churches, this church turned the day into a joyous occasion. So, you know, the, the classic scenes, the kids parading through the sanctuary, waving palm branches, everyone chanting Hosanna. We sang upbeat hymns, and I was just in no mood to participate. So I remember sitting in the pew there and just crying out to God in prayer and basically saying, God, I'm a failure of a peacemaker. I have no idea how to work for the flourishing of this community. But I, I still believe you're in the resurrection business. I believe you still breathe new life into dying communities. So teach me how to be a peacemaker. And this was one of those rare times where, at least for me, it's rare, where the answer to prayer comes really fast. And so when the sermon began, I decided to just read one of the gospel accounts of Palm Sunday. And so I randomly chose Luke's. And that's uh, in Luke's gospel, it tells us that as Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the city whose name means peace, uh, as he made his triumphal entry into the city, it says in Luke that the crowds were shouting cheers, but Jesus was shedding tears. And I had always overlooked that before. Uh, maybe it was because my emotions matched Jesus's that day that I noticed it. I'm not sure. Um, but but when the, Luke goes on to say that when Jesus could remain silent no more, he cries out for all to hear this, this powerful lament. He says, if only you knew on this of all days, the things that make for peace. And so, you know, it's taken years to unpack the implications of that discovery, which is the, the fruit of that is this book. But as I sat in that pew all those years ago, I knew I discovered where the answer to my prayer was to be found. Uh, in other words, if I was ever going to become a, effective at confronting injustice and, and calling out oppressors and contending for peace, then, then I needed to study the greatest peacemakers, greatest week, or what we call Holy Week. Um, you know, when it speaks of things in the plural that make for peace, I think we often reduce uh, Jesus' peacemaking efforts to the cross. And while that's the culmination of how Jesus makes peace, I'm convinced now that Jesus was crucified on Friday precisely because of how he waged peace on the previous days of Holy Week. And when we fail to recognize that, uh, 
then we may cling to the cross for our salvation, yet be embracing the very approach to making and maintaining peace that justified nailing Jesus to that cross. And so, um, really, the heart behind this book is, is to say, I'm convinced if you want to learn uh, how Jesus makes peace, if you want to become a practitioner of Jesus's approach to peacemaking, I'm convinced there's no better place to look than Holy Week. And so most books on on nonviolence and peacemaking, well, they're either apologetic in nature, you know, trying to answer the objections raised by those who do not hold that view, or they tend to look at Jesus's classic peace teaching, most of which is found in the Sermon on the Mount. So a lot of peacemaking books focus on the Sermon on the Mount, and for good reason, you know, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, That just this beautiful teaching there. My struggle in the downtown east side was, I had that teaching memorized, but for example, in the messiness of daily life there, how do I love my enemy and my neighbor as myself when my enemy is currently oppressing my neighbor? And so the great thing about Holy Week is it's the main stage on which we get to see Jesus put all of his previous peace teaching into action. So those abstract principles, they find concrete expression, those lofty ethical ideals, they become grounded in actual events. And that's what I needed to see. Yeah, that was that was so helpful for, for me. You know, when you talked about how uh, everybody's so joyful and yet Jesus is crying, I was like, oh, that, that makes sense. So when you, uh, you know, talked about how, you know, you talk about the, the, ch- the length of time that they spend on Holy Week and on each particular day, I'm like, oh yeah, I never, I never really placed some of his conversations in the midst of Holy Week in a larger context, and I just, I thought it was, it was fantastic how you draw a lot of those things out. Oh, thanks. Yeah, you know, because we make the cross the main event, and and rightfully so, but we tend to strip it from its context and thus sever it from the life of the one who gives it meaning. And so I was struck while researching for this book that the gospel writers front load their coverage of the week, which is what you're talking about, right? And so Tuesday, for example, is the most talked about day of Holy Week. But what do we do? We celebrate Palm Sunday, and then we do nothing until maybe a Monday, Thursday evening service. For many in America, nothing until Easter Sunday. Uh, You know, we gather back together. And so we skip over all those days leading up to the cross. So one of those those aspects of Holy Week I want to kind of get to first um, you know, I think, I think part of our problem too, is that we think that, um, you know, we're the people who are cheering for Jesus and it's easy looking in retrospect, knowing what Jesus gets us, um, with his life and with the cross to, to think that we're kind of on his team. And we, one of the other things that your book did was it helped me to understand why so many people really didn't like him. Um, mm. Because of the way that he was pursuing justice and, and confronting people, especially Judas, you know, I, I felt like I understood his motivations a lot more after this. Yeah. But what I found really interesting was, you know, when you when you talk about the uh, the tax and the conversation that Jesus has, that he is actually faced with the Pharisees and the Herodians, who are on opposite ends of the political spectrum, and. That's just fascinating because you know, at least in the states, it's rare to get uh, to get both sides of the political aisle to kind of agree on anything. And I'm sure it was the the same back in the day. Um, can you explain the the political landscape in regard to the temple tax question 
and discuss why Jesus was a threat to politics in his day and why kind of if you pursue justice the way that he did, he should be a threat for, for politics of our day. Yeah, great question. So let me situate that scene within the timeline of, of Holy Week. So so Sunday, Jesus does that triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and then it culminates that evening with him going into the temple and looking around, it says. He assesses the situation, and he goes back to Bethany for the night, which is about two miles outside of, of Jerusalem, comes back the next day. That's the temple cleansing scene that we talk about um, often, so that happens on Monday. And because of that, scene, it says that the religious leaders uh, started to look for a way to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the crowds. He, you know, he had this huge and growing support. So Tuesday, Jesus has the audacity to actually come back to the temple. Uh, now, as I say in the book, it, it may have actually been the safest place for Jesus because at least it, it was teeming with his supporters. And so the religious leaders have a problem. They want to arrest Jesus. They want to find some way to justify having him put to death after what he did on Monday. But he's got the support of the crowds, and they're afraid the crowds will turn on them. So they devise a plan. They decide that if they can get Jesus to misspeak, uh, that they could cause his supporters to turn on him. So they ask him a series of baited questions or uh, these unanswerable tests. And of course, he aces each one. He's like a like a nonviolent jujitsu master, like he takes some momentum and turns it on them, you know. And, uh, and so one of those questions is the famous uh, tax question, is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Uh, and then Jesus's now famous answer, which we often translate as render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. So that question, uh, it was a brilliant question because, so when Judea became officially um, under direct Roman rule in AD 6, Rome uh, decided that, okay, we're going to have a poll tax for every adult. Um, And so they decided to have a census to see how much the province would owe. And at the time, there was actually a a Galilean named Judas who led a a pretty uh, popular anti-tax revolt against Rome. And in fact, his secondhand man was a Pharisee named Zadok. But despite getting thousands to join their cause, they were quickly crushed. Acts chapter 5 tells us Judas was executed for this anti-tax revolt. And so now, on Tuesday of Holy Week, here's another popular, prominent Galilean. Uh, And in fact, he had actually adopted Judas the Galilean's motto. It's a a motto that that speaks uh, of of the need to rally around one all-encompassing allegiance. It's a motto that, that tells us that all other lords and loyalties are to be excluded. It's a motto that many of us say often, the kingdom of God. Uh, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan, they, they write about this. They say, you know, Jesus could have spoken about the people of God, the family of God, the community of God, but instead he chose a politically loaded slogan, the kingdom of God. And I, I think we often overlook this. You know, Matthew Bates, in his book, Gospel Allegiance, uh, he does a great job looking at the Greek word pistis, which is what we usually translate as faith. But the word pistis has a much 
broader uh, semantic range, in other words, range of potential meanings than our English word faith. And so in Scripture, sometimes it's translated as trust or faith. Sometimes it's translated as trustworthy or faithful. Uh, and so there's a huge debate among scholars when, when Jesus speaks about uh, pistis Christu, uh, is it saying put our faith in Christ, or is it saying that because of the faithfulness of Christ? Uh, huge scholarly debate, right? The word pistis, it can also refer to fidelity or loyalty to a leader. And in fact, in other writings of that time, that's how it was often used. And when we used to refer to a king or ruler, the best translation that Matthew Bates argues, and I think he's right on this, is to translate it as allegiance. And that's how the early church understood this, to say that Jesus is the Christ, the ruler, the king, the Messiah, that he's Lord. This is political language that they're co-opting from Rome that was given to Caesar, applying it to Jesus, and they're saying we're giving our pistis, our allegiance to Jesus. Um, and so uh, I think we, we overlook the political ramifications of that. So in the, the this temple tax question, the people who divide, the religious leaders that came up with the question to trap Jesus were actually the ones in charge of collecting that unpopular tax. So they couldn't ask the question, right? Everyone would know it was a sham. So it says that they sent the Herodians and the Pharisees, which you were talking about. So Herodians, you know, uh, fans of Herod, they were lackeys of the Roman government. The Pharisees, you know, basically the Pharisees, they doubled down in their... So they were afraid that Rome, uh, of Roman enculturation, that the Jewish people would, kind of like Israelites in exile in Babylon, many of them, they were afraid many would get swept up uh, by, by Roman culture. And so they basically doubled down. It was basically a reactionary spirituality. They were afraid of enculturation, veering too far to the right, so they yanked the wheel to the left and doubled down and became even more rigid. So the Pharisees were very much against the tax, hence... Judas the Galilean's partner being a Pharisee back in eighty six, um, and so they asked this question: Is it right to pay? Isn't it? Either answer is going to get Jesus in trouble, and so he gives this famous answer: "Give back" is the Greek word there, or "repay," return to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And you know, we we usually interpret that today as uh, you know, well we're dual citizens, you know, we're members of the kingdom of God, of heaven, and of an earthly nation. So yes, we we give to God the things that are God's, and there's things we give to Caesar. But any Jew with even a, a cursory understanding of the scriptures would have understood the, the answer to the second question, what belongs to God, right? Because in order to return something to someone, that's the brilliance of his answer. In order to return something to someone, you need to know to whom it belongs, <laughs> right? And so, uh, the Hebrew scriptures, there's this mantra that just runs throughout it. Everything belongs to God. Everything, the earth and everything in it. And in fact, uh, in Jesus's answer to the previous baited question on Tuesday, it culminates in him telling this parable and where he says, look, uh, you Jewish religious leaders, you're actually like tenants. God owns the vineyard. Uh, and so, uh, no wonder why it says that the crowds were amazed. They were just floored by the brilliance of his answer. Uh, and, and actually, the religious leaders later in the week, they accuse him of refusing to pay the tax. So that's how, what they understood Jesus to be saying, which is not how we tend to understand it today. Uh, now, the New Testament writers and the early Christians, they gave a more nuanced answer, I would say. So, um, 
they often said, we'll give to Caesar um, anything that doesn't contradict God, because ultimately our allegiance is to God. It was basically, in short, their answer. Yeah, and uh, how how would you see that then applying to to us today? You know, um, all all the politicians and religious leaders seem to be upset with Jesus. Um, not too many people. I mean, like at least in the states, um, it, Christianity has not been persecuted um, for a long time. It, it seems like we kind of get along, have gotten along for a while with everybody. Um, and yeah, and, and then you've also got the Romans 13 and submission. And, uh, so h- how does that play out in our culture? Yeah. You know, maybe I can tell a little of the, the history of how this passage was interpreted and then look at Romans 13. I'll try to do it real, real briefly. Um, so in the mid second century, there was a gentleman named Justin Martyr. And he wrote an apology, in other words, a defense of Christianity, because there was sporadic persecution going on, but always the pervasive threat of persecution. And so he wrote to the emperor basically to try to say, you have nothing to fear from us Christians. And so he quotes Jesus's tax answer and then says this, he says to the emperor, whence to God alone we render our worship and everything else we gladly serve you. And so with that answer, Justin Martyr, he he injected this deadly dualism into Christianity and into that tax answer that wasn't there before. Now, I, I don't doubt the sincerity of, of Justin Martyr's faith. After, after all, he would later die a martyr for refusing to give the emperor the one thing he said belonged to God alone, our worship. But Justin was not a Jew. He was a Gentile that converted to Christianity as an adult. And growing up, he was taught Platonic thought, this dualistic idea that that the physical and the spiritual are separated in two separate spheres. And so that's how he interpreted Jesus' tax answer. And because of that, over time, you know, the Caesars of this world became increasingly bold in what they dem- said we owed them, while church leaders often became content just focusing on so-called spiritual things, you know, um, uh, personal salvation, getting people into heaven. And so even in the Reformation, uh, Luther took it one step further and developed what's called the doctrine of the two kingdoms, where he basically said, uh, how we often translate that passage today, where he said, look, as in our personal individual lives, we follow the ethics of Christ and his kingdom, but we also have a civic responsibility to our countries, and they are governed by a different ethic, the ethic of the sword. And so ultimately, you know, centuries later, instead of everything belonging to God, now suddenly everything but worship belongs to Caesar. Now, there have been Christians throughout time and place who have objected to this and realized, no, when we, you know, when we give our allegiance or put our faith in Jesus as Lord, then we belong to his kingdom in his ways. Romans 13 is that passage where uh, it really needs to be situated in its context. Romans 12, you know, a lot of nonviolent uh, advocates of nonviolence talk about that. Situated in Romans 12, overcome evil with good, et cetera, et cetera. All this talk about peacemaking nonviolently. 
Then there's Romans 13, verses 1 to 7, where it talks about uh, submitting to governing authorities. And, and it's th- this word submit, it doesn't necessarily mean to obey. It, what it means is um, to respectfully submit to the consequences, whether one must obey or disobey. So in the, you know, the early Christians, uh, sometimes they were martyred uh, for refusing to, uh, to worship Caesar's gods. Yet they prayed for Caesar as he fed them to his lions. So that's a beautiful picture of submissive disobedience, right? Um, and then Paul goes actually to the same tax question that Jesus was answering because uh, scholars think it was because uh, Nero at the time was revising the tax code. And the theory uh, is that uh, Jews living in Rome were revolting against it. They had done so once before and were crushed because of it. And the theory is that uh, Christians were were toying with joining that revolt. And so Paul basically says, you know, look, pay the tax, pay the custom to whom the customs do. But then he gives this litmus test, which we tend to overlook. This is the other part of the context we strip, verses 8 through 10, where he says, but ultimately, here's what you owe the Caesars of this world. He says, you owe no one anything but love. And in case that's too ambiguous of a concept, he then defines love. And love does no harm to another. Uh, So what I understand Paul to be saying there, what many Christians throughout history have understood Paul to be saying, is that if the Caesars of this world or our uh, nation's leaders ask us to do something that will cause harm to another, then we don't owe it to them. Ultimately, we obey God, not man. Yeah. That's, I mean, we could get into the weeds with that, you know, and the implications of, at least in the United States, a lot of our tax dollars go to fund war and stuff. But um, yeah. um, I, I guess what, what I would want to focus on there is, so I was, I became convinced of nonviolence pretty quickly um, once I started researching it. Uh, it just made a lot of sense. Um, and that was in the midst of the the 2016 presidential election for me with um, okay. you know, pres- Trump and, and Clinton. Um, and so that, that immediately led me to think about, well, wait a second, if, if I can't bear the sword against my enemy and the government bears the sword, what implication does that have for me in government? And I think what was, what was particularly hard for me in that is it seemed very clear that I can't be involved in government, at least, I mean, maybe at the very local level. Uh, where you're not making legislation that bears sword and stuff. But um, I also have a, a strong aversion, as I know you do, because I know you've gone and lived in slums and you care you care about justice. It seems like you're being a retreatist if you don't uh, participate in government. So how do you, w- with your perspective, how do you view a Christian's interaction with government? What should that be like? Yeah, great question. And and let me just say at the start, this is one, this question is one that Christians have disagreed on. Um, even historic uh, peace uh, Christian traditions, Mennonites, for example, Brethren in Christ, other Anabaptist groups disagree on, on this question. Uh, so historically, the, the early church, for example, they basically, they're consistent teaching was that um, 
any position that would, would require you to take life or give the order for a life to be taken, you couldn't hold that and be a Christian. Um, so, you know, I can, uh, a couple examples. Um, Hippolytus of Rome, he wrote in uh, around the turn of the second to third century, and he said, the professions and trades of those who are going to be accepted into the community, in other words, the church, they must be examined. Uh, the nature and type of each must be established. Brothel, sculptors of idols, charioteer, athlete, gladiator, give it up or be rejected. A military constable must be forbidden to kill. Neither may he swear. If he's not willing to follow these instructions, he must be rejected. Uh, and that's just one example, numerous examples among the early church that held that stance. You can't kill. You can't even have, be a judge uh, who gives the order to kill. Uh and then, you know, I think on the other end of the spectrum as far as of pacifists would be someone like Tony Campolo. I remember he said once, look, a Christian can hold any job, but if they act like Jesus, there's many professions in which they better expect to be fired within a few weeks. And, and I guess I lean more toward that latter side, um, having that stance, you know. Um, ultimately, we're called to act like Jesus, and I think we'll find out you know, there's some professions where uh, we're going to get fired if we do that. Uh, now, to the the other aspect of your question about isn't that then being a retreatist? You know, it's it's interesting. So, so when we look at the all the writings that we found from the first three centuries of church history, there's not a single writer that approves of Christians using violence. Now. Sometimes you can read into what they're writing and you can get the sense there must have been some Christians tempted to join the army, for example, because they're having to speak out against it. But the writers themselves, every writing we found so far, disapproves of Christians using violence. Um, but what's interesting is there are non-Christian writings we found that, uh, for example, are, are written to an emperor that say, these re- Christians, they refuse to to join the military, they refuse to serve in positions of government, yet they do more to improve the well-being of society than we do. Look at how they care for our poor better than we do, for example. So I, I think this, this uh, accusation of being retreatist, it might be true of some Christians, throughout history, certainly some pacifist groups who, you know, I think they looked at the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and they took pacifism to mean do nothing, to retreat, to to stay back and out of society. But I think when you look at Jesus during Holy Week, we see just how active he was in waging peace, and no one could accuse Jesus of being retreatist. And I, I think that's the model that we ought to follow. So let's uh, let's give you a real world application here. Um, so right now, living in Romania, and of course we're we're about a month into uh, the war in Ukraine going on, and we've we've seen a huge influx of uh, refugees into Romania. And now, I mean, I'm not I'm not going around trying to um, you know convert people's minds to a pacifist position, but there are definitely conversations that have come up that. Um, you know, had, had somebody asked me for my input, um, and, and I would have spoken up about my convictions, it would have probably been kind of awkward, you know, cause it's, how do you tell somebody who just had their, had to leave their fiance behind 
um, to to fight because he was conscripted or or joined the army or their their houses were bombed or their neighbors were killed and you've got this massive Russian army that's that's bearing down on them with advanced technology and how how do you fight that by standing in front of a of a tank even if you get that one tank to turn what does that do to the missiles and the bombs and so how do you see like in in a position like mine um or in a position all around the world where there's there's oppression and you saw just different types of oppression in in the slums where you lived like how do you how do you even talk about nonviolence sensitively when it seems like that is just a joke to people as I'm sure it was in Jesus's day, you know, you've got Roman oppressors who are crucifying people and, and extorting them. Like, how do you, how do you tell people to do that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting the timing of this book coming out and then the war in Ukraine starting. Um, in the sense that I've had uh, a handful of readers say, you know, I felt really persuaded uh, by this way of nonviolent, active peacemaking that you describe in the book. But then the situation in Ukraine happened, and I don't know what to do with that. And, and I, I completely understand where they're coming from with that. Um, let me first just say, you know, I'm sitting in the comfort of a home here in, in Texas in the United States. And so um, anything I say, you know, I think above all, we need to have just deep empathy for the suffering going on in Ukraine. Um so I'll give some answers to to your question, but you know, I for the last ten years I've been a member of of a what's called an evangelical friend, so a historic Quaker church, and and one of the things Quakers do well is listen, and in fact our church's motto is listen, learn, love, and I think if I was there in Romania meeting with Ukrainian refugees, I would not be trying to. Uh, actively proactively engage in conversations to convince and persuade them of the the power of nonviolence i would first and foremost try to have a posture of listening in order to learn from them in order to love better uh so that, i think that's the first thing i'd say um but let me give a few thoughts on your question about ukraine i think so uh, someone once said to a hammer everything looks like a nail and I think when we, as an American, because we allocate billions of dollars each year to our military, it's really difficult for us to envision any way to resist the occupation going on right now other than military solutions, right? But like you said, um, you know, having lived in, in a slum in Indonesia, having been among, among the poor in, in Vancouver, and like I talk about in the book, um, you know, I've lived in, in poor sections of three cities in the U.S., uh, Philly, Wichita, Los Angeles. And in each, there was a military recruitment center just blocks from my house. And most days you could see recruiters walking the streets trying to, to get people to join, uh, conscripting my neighbors. And, you know, the group I joined, Servants, uh, when they started, they had no commitment to nonviolent peacemaking. But after decades of living among the poor, they saw how the poor are disproportionately affected by violence. And so now they actually have, or by the time I joined, they had a very strong commitment to nonviolent forms of peacemaking. 
um, because they saw how the poor were disproportionately affected and how they were the ones being conscripted by the rich to do the fighting, which we're seeing right now. You know, so many of these tragic stories of, of soldiers in the Russian military getting paid just such little bits of money, but joining because they needed that money. Um, so let me, but let me give some specific thoughts on Ukraine. So this doesn't get covered in the news, but Ukraine actually has a beautiful history of seeing the effectiveness of nonviolent forms of resistance. And in fact, in, in 2015, the, the Kiev International Institute of Sociology, they conducted this nationwide uh, survey uh, where they asked Ukrainians their preference if a foreign armed invasion and an occupation of Ukraine was to happen, how should we resist? And I'm sure everyone had Russia in mind because Crimea had just happened, right? The most popular choice of resistance in that survey among Ukrainians was to gauge, engage in civilian-led nonviolent resistance. Most popular choice. And in fact, there's two scholars, Chenoweth and Stephen, they, they actually have a book, Why Civil Resistance Works. One of them now works for the State Department to advocate for nonviolent forms of, of resistance. So here's an example of someone who believes in nonviolence working for the government, but in a position where they feel like it's not betraying their ethic, right? So this would be a great example. Uh, the other one teaches now at an Ivy League school. Um, but they wrote this book, Why Civil Resistance Works, in which they combed the historical record of global conflicts from 1900 to 2006. And they found that nonviolent resistance was twice as likely to succeed as armed resistance. Now, as a Christian, I think above all, we're called to be faithful, not effective. But when Jesus cried out, if only you knew the things that make for peace, I think he realized there, you know, the methods that you are using do not build lasting peace. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so these two scholars. They did. They looked also at the history of anti-occupational struggles during that same time period, 1900 to 2006. And in that specific situation, which is what's the situation that's going on in Ukraine right now, they did find that nonviolent resistance was just equally as successful, only about a third of the time, 35% for nonviolent resistance and 36% for armed resistance with some margin of error that basically makes them equal. And some of that is because usually a, a foreign country doesn't occupy unless they have a much bigger military and they think they can succeed. But even in those situations, they found that whether successful or it failed when you used arm resistance, on average, those conflicts lasted three times longer than when you resisted with nonviolence. It also always came with a much higher loss of human life and damage to infrastructure. And there was a much, much lower probability of building a de healthy democracy afterward compared to using nonviolent resistance. So I think that's the first thing I would say is when we ask this question, we often assume resisting with nonviolence wouldn't be effective. But that's not what the history shows. The history shows even if nonviolent resistance is ineffective because of the, the much lower loss of human life and the cost of infrastructure, it gives time for them to then resist later on down the road, which is why often these democracies form soon after. I think the other thing I would say is just, you know, 
Putin's greatest strength is his military might. You know, the Ukrainian military is dwarfed by by Russia's. Um, and the fact that Putin has 6,000 nuclear warheads at his fingertip, it's effectively kept any allies from getting directly involved in the fighting. Uh, but Putin also has a great weakness, especially at the start of this conflict. And that was that he he lacks significant support among his own people. And what little support he has seems to be based on on a lie, a lie that takes extensive amounts of energy to try to suppress the truth from getting out. Ukraine, you know, their greatest weakness is their military compared to Russia's. Um, but they have some great strengths. You know, the passion and the unity and the willingness to die among their people compared to what seems to be the confusion and the lack of passion among many of the, the Russian soldiers. Um, and they also have significant global support, but they can't tap into that support as far as directly with military resistance. And my concern, though, is that when Ukraine is violently resisting Russia's forces, they're in effect, they're trying to overcome Putin's greatest strength with their greatest weakness. But even beyond that, when you, you know, footage of Russian soldiers being killed coupled with uh, Ukrainian leaders speaking of Russian soldiers as evil or the enemy, that actually benefits Putin because it helps him galvanize support for the war within Russia and thus overcome his primary weakness. And so, you know, I just think, man, if only there was a way to overcome Putin's greatest weakness with Ukraine's greatest strength. And I think the answer to that is nonviolent resistance. Yeah, I, I think that uh, that second answer, especially, we, we did a whole season on nonviolent action, which I think is my favorite just because I personally learned so much that I just never knew was there. And I, I read Chenoweth's uh, book as well, which was mm-hmm. which was very insightful. Um, but yeah, I'm just like, what I see when I see Ukraine responding is I, I see cyclical violence. I see them feeding, like, well, the, the Russian conscripts who came in who didn't hate you, now that their buddy's dead, now they do. Yeah. And um yeah. But I also I get I get why they want to respond with violence. It feels like you're doing something. Um so. Yeah. I want to I want to zoom in a little bit more uh, cuz in your book and you, you just mentioned it too. Um this idea that, you know, when you were in poor neighborhoods, you saw um military recruiters coming around and and coming after people uh which I never saw in my neighborhood. Uh, you know, which it, it wasn't uh, a poor neighborhood. And just this idea of kind of going after the poor. Um, I know that there was, um, in the Vietnam War, uh, if you look up McNamara's Folly, that was, they they lowered like the IQ ranges and they did a bunch of stuff to basically recruit uh, cannon fodder there too. So it's hmm. it's uh, documented historically. You, you can, you can uh, I mean follow the trail but like as uh, also seeing it right now in Romania I just had a, a friend who told me about um, his border guard friend or his his police friend and he was sent like six hours from here up to the border because the border guards here in Romania have been taking 10 fifteen thousand euro uh, bribes to to get wow. um, men out men who don't want to fight mm-hmm. um, but the, the the cop said yeah when I went up there he's like I saw just a line of the nicest, most expensive cars I've ever seen. So basically you have the wealthy conscripts who 
who've got trunkfuls of money in these nice sports cars that are able to get out because they're able to pay for their freedom. Yep. And the people who are left are are the poor people, the people without connections. Um, so, yeah, I would love for you to to talk a little bit more about maybe some of your experiences. And, and I also remember you told me uh, when we talked a couple of years ago how you went in with people who didn't weren't nonviolent, but after working with the poor, they they became nonviolent. Give give me a better vision of what it looks like, how the poor are exploited, um, how violence affects them, um, yeah, and, and how that's maybe you know thinking about justice and thinking, well, if Ukraine fighting back, that's justice, but saying no, 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 it really just that hurts the poor. Um, it's nonviolence that really brings about peace and justice. Yeah, great uh, discussion and questions there. Um, so let me start just historically. You know, I've talked about the early church, and then uh, we people often talk about the Constantinian shift, that with Constantine, when he basically granted freedom to all religions, um, and within a century, to to be a, in a soldier in the Roman army, you had to be a Christian. So quite a change, a shift that happens right over the course of a century. Nowadays, we, we often talk about how we assume we've undone that Constantinian shift for we talk now about separation of church and state. But when I look at, at that historical shift, what happened was the church went from being with the powerless to being the ones with the power. They went from being among the marginalized to being at the center of society. They went from being among the voiceless to being the ones with a voice. And when I look at the church today, sadly, that's the position, the perspective we often still try to have. Uh, we try to be the ones with the power, with the voice, at the center, uh, making these these decisions for our societies. And like I talk about in the book, this idea of perspective, where, where you stand determines what you see. And when you're at the center and you're only listening to those with the voice, the loudest talking heads, um, and you're among the powerful, violence often can seem like a justifiable answer uh, to a problem. And in fact, to situate this in Holy Week, you know, um, on Wednesday we see Caiaphas gather the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Jews, to determine how are we going to arrest Jesus. And they don't say that they want to kill him because they hate him. That may have been true, but that's not what the Gospels say. It says uh, that they said, you know, if we don't stop him, uh, Rome might come and take our whole nation away and destroy the temple. And then Caiaphas just does this quick math in his head, and he says, you know what? It's better for one man to die than for a whole nation to perish. And his math seems indisputable. It's like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, it's this classic case, the ends justify the means. But what I realized as I researched for this book was it was a concocted uh, fictional future. You know, um, Caiaphas feared that this would happen, but he didn't know for sure. You know, we can't predict the future any better than he could. Um, and and so we often do the same. And so, you know, I tell the story in the book, and maybe this will be a practical example, but um, back in the early 70s, the United States with, with Nixon and Kissinger, they thought, okay, here's a, an opportunity for us to win the war in Vietnam. Uh, and so they, they decided to start bombing uh, Vietnamese soldiers they thought were hiding out in neighboring neutral Cambodia. 
And so over the course of four years, they bombed 113,000 Cambodian sites uh, using B-52 planes that would go in and drop bombs. And in fact, using the CIA's own numbers, which the UN says are drastically underestimated, but using the CIA's numbers, we dropped um, so many bombs that the total blast force would be equal to 14 times the nuclear bombs we dropped on Japan. And so at the time, there uh, was a man who called himself Pol Pot, that led the Khmer Rouge, and they used our bombings as propaganda to get recruits to join their movement. And and uh, in fact, there was a memo uh, between two CIA agents that that's pointed that out. Um, but it was it was too late. And so after the war, you know, we thought this from the perspective of Washington D.C. from the halls of power, Nixon and Kissinger thought this is how we can bring peace to the region. This is how we can win the war. But in the end, what it did was it galvanized Pol Pot's uh, uh, group, and they actually overtook the country of Cambodia a few years later and spoke of re- returning the country to the year zero. They wanted to make it an agrarian society, and it led to a genocide that slaughtered millions of Cambodians, especially the urban elites and scholars. And um, you know, one of my teammates in Vancouver, Nehui Greenfield, she grew up in Cambodia, and her dad was killed in that genocide. And she and her younger brother, they were like, I think, four and six years old at the time, along with her mom and aunt, uh, were forced, uh, her mom and aunt were forced to work in rice fields. And so Nay and her brother just had to fend for themselves each day. And as malnourishment set in uh, and desperation grew, uh, her mom and aunt decided to make a daring escape. And so they would uh, travel at night in the cloak of darkness, sleep during the day in the jungles, and eventually they made it to to Vietnam and then um, got into a refugee camp and ultimately made it to New Zealand, where she then spent the rest of her growing up years. Um, but then as an adult, she and her then-husband Craig, uh, they moved back to Cambodia and moved into the slums of Phnom Penh. They were there for 10 years. They were in Vancouver with me for about 10... Well, they were there for... I think about seven or eight years, and then have been back in Cambodia now for a good 10 years. And they started a ministry called Alongsiders that basically helps Cambodians care for their own orphans. Instead of putting orphans in orphanages, stripping them from their communities, they, they help Cambodians. Often there's an auntie or a grandma that could take care of them if they just had some more income coming in. And just a couple years back, they they bought some land um, along the coast and started a camp for these alongsiders, uh, and they call the camp Shalom Valley. And when they got the land, they noticed that there were craters where some of the bombs that our country dropped in the region were. And now they could have filled those craters in, you know, hidden these wounds from the past, but they they chose to leave them there. And in fact, now. Uh, when campers come out, they sit around the edge of that bomb crater and they talk about the peace teachings of Jesus. And, and Craig and they have said to me, you know, it's amazing just how those that sit around the edge of that bomb crater get it. You know, uh, when you uh, live with the powerless, when you see how the poor are disproportionately affected by violence, Jesus' peace teaching just makes sense. Uh, and in fact, I don't tell this in the book, but a couple months back, you know, the 
monsoon rains came and the bomb crater filled with water and Craig and A said, any American soldiers want to come and get baptized in the nonviolent way of Jesus, you know? Um, and so it's just a beautiful example to me of, you know, from the comfort and the safety uh, of here, you know, for our political leaders in DC, it just seemed like violence was the answer, but it just causes more harm than good. Um, but those who have been the victims of war realize it's just like Dr. King always said, it's, it's a terrible way to carve out a peaceful future. Yeah. And I, I think probably one of the, the things that I hear a lot and one of the reasons that I initially didn't want to come to nonviolence is because it seems like it's, it's very idealistic, you know, retreatist. We, we talked about that a little bit, but you know, then also idealistic, like, okay, even if, even if I'm going to try to live nonviolently, that's idealistic. Like there, there's no way that, that that's going to function in this world. And, and I think, um, you know, for me that, that was, um, that was made clear to me in, in an election where I was debating on whether I vote or not. And, um, and that Sunday that I was debating that in my head, I, we had a sermon on, or not a sermon, a, uh, you know, asking for volunteers, like who, who can go to the homeless shelter this week and, and help out or the food pantry. And I was like, Oh, well, I'm busy this week. And I was thinking, Oh yeah, everybody's probably really busy. They, they never get many volunteers. And then I'm thinking, I'm sitting here like, like, Oh, it's not a big deal that I don't get to go to the food pantry, but man, I got to go and I got to cast my once in four years vote to, to, to do, to make a difference. And I think something that, that I've started to realize is that, um, really the way that, that Jesus functions in the world is through discipleship and through community. And that was something that I appreciated in your book. You brought up the idea of community and, um, you know, being perfect like God is perfect might be idealistic to a certain extent, yet Christians are called to pursue the ideal. And the way that we pursue that ideal um, isn't through trying to legislate other people to do the right thing, but it's by submitting and conforming to Christ as a community and becoming an exemplar of the right thing for other people to follow. So in, in your book, uh, you have a bunch of different diagrams when you talk about community and, and all of that. Would you just talk about how the Christian community is supposed to be the pursued ideal and how that's transformative for the world? Sure. Yeah. Whether Christians realize it or not in the United States, most for most Christians, their understanding of Christian ethics has been deeply shaped by a man named Reinhold Niebuhr. And, and he's taught uh, something similar to the argument you were just saying. He's, he looked at like Jesus's ethical teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, these are ethical ideals, but they're unattainable. We can't live them, but they're still useful because they give us uh, a measurement by which to gauge our best approximations we can reach. So that was kind of his ethical teaching. Interestingly, one of the big critiques of Niebuhr is just that uh, he he focused on Christians as individuals and never looked at the church as a community. Um, and and his his interpretation of how to use the Sermon on the Mount is so different from like the early Christians. You know, Justin Martyr. I already talked about him maybe in a negative light, but he also did. did said many great things. Uh, and so, for example, he said, uh, we, the church, are the community of people who seek to cultivate now 
the future promised to us by the crucified one. And that was the mentality of the early Christians. That, that's what it means to be a people of the resurrection, to seek to live out now uh, God's kingdom values. And so in the book, um, I, I tell some stories from my time in the downtown east side, basically. My, my attempts on my own as an individual to love my neighbors. And, you know, I'd, I volunteered a few mornings a week at, at a kind of breakfast uh, soup kitchen uh, where we'd, we'd hand out food. But mostly I would just stand in line with my neighbors, striking up conversations, and then sit and share the meal with them there. Um, I'd walk the streets usually for a couple hours each day, preferably trying to strike up conversations with my neighbors on the streets. I'm always looking for an excuse to take someone and treat them to a cup of coffee at a local coffee shop. But if I'm honest, when I look back at my years in the downtown east side, my personal individual efforts to seek to help my neighbors find uh, liberation and freedom from their addictions to drugs, get off the streets, etc., I saw very little fruit when ministering on my own. But I moved there as part of a community, a community of Christians who had all left good-paying jobs and moved into the downtown east side. And as a community, we saw loads of fruit. You know, my, my friend Craig, uh, who I've already mentioned, he and his wife, Nay, you know, were in Cambodia. Um, we early on spent a week voluntarily homeless uh, to try to get to know what our neighbors were going through. And after that week, we realized no one in our neighborhood is starving for food. You could get free food, free meals 23 times a day in the downtown east side. But there were, the loneliness was pervasive. 88% of my neighbors lived alone. Um, and so hospitality became our main form of ministry as a community. And so our neighbors would join us. We'd cook together. We'd eat together. We'd clean the dishes together afterwards together. You know, most evenings, six evenings a week, we'd often have 20, 30 people over uh, for dinner. And afterwards, often just spontaneous jam session, you know, we'd sing Amazing Grace and ACDC back to back, you know, just this beautiful time. And um, um, we also started something called Prehab, where we noticed um, a number of neighbors would hit rock bottom, want to get off drugs. They go to one of the local rehab places, programs, and uh, say, I want to get in. And the program would say, well, great. All of our beds are full. Once someone graduates or drops out, you're on the list. We'll tell you when, when the spot's open for you. But each day you had to go back and say, I still want to be in. Uh, and you had to give a, a urine test to see, have you been using drugs? And if you did, you're, you're off the list. And so after seeing so many neighbors, uh, fall back into temptation and start using drugs again. And understandably, I mean, you walk the streets of the downtown east side and people are constantly offering drugs to you. And we know that the devil tempts us the most when we're on our own. So we said, well, let's start something called prehab, where we just say, okay, you're, you're wanting to get into rehab, come live with us until a spot opens up in one of the local rehab programs. You can't bring any of your drug paraphernalia in, um, but one of us will walk with you each day. Uh, when you go down to say you still want in and, and to uh, take the test. And because, again, we know how tempting it is when you're walking alone on the streets. And we saw so much transformation between those communal meals where we just welcome neighbors in as our friends. You know, um, some, uh, you know, graduated from rehab and became just uh, beautiful members of our community. Um, one, even, he, uh, his first week, he was allowed to leave the program to go to church. So halfway through the program, um, 
Craig was speaking at a local church, and he heard Craig speak about their ministry work in Cambodia, and he went up to Craig afterwards and said, God's calling me to be a missionary in Cambodia. And if it was me, I, I would have been like, well, why don't you get out of rehab first? Come hang out for a while, you know? And Craig said, well, great. I'll come down and start teaching you the language, you know? Um, and so soon after, this gentleman joined our community, and he was known as the weeping preacher because uh, he would always just, uh, tears would fill his eyes when he talked about the transforming work God did in his life. And he has been in the slums of Cambodia now for going on 12 years now, uh, and God's just doing amazing things in his life. Um so I say that to say, you know, in the book, the million-dollar question is, why were my personal efforts to work for the transformation of my community, why did they produce such little fruit, at least that I could see? Yet when ministering as part of a community, we saw amazing transformation, abundant fruit. Um, and so in the book, I, you know, I, I go off of um, Jesus's new love command, um, as I have loved y'all, it's you in the plural, uh, you all must love each other. It's this this command for the first time ever for his disciples to commit themselves to loving each other as Christ has loved them, to form these communities modeled off of Christ's love. And uh, the beautiful thing, this is where those diagrams come in, is uh, a friend and mentor, Dave Andrews, out of Australia. He says, you know, one person can talk about the love of Christ and others at best can listen and say, I've now heard about God's love. Two people committed to loving each other as Christ has loved them. Uh, others can gather around and say, wow, now I can see Christ's love in action. I, I can see it being demonstrated by how those two people love each other. But once you have at least three people, in other words, once you have a community committed to loving each other as Christ has loved them, picturing, you know, like three uh, what is, I forget my math terms, vertices, is it? The three corners of a triangle. Uh, it creates a space into which others can be welcomed in so that they no longer just hear about God's love. They no longer just see it being demonstrated. Now they can experience it themselves. And so I think we, when we think of nonviolent peacemaking, we often think of exemplar individuals, Dr. King, Rosa Parks, etc. But we also need to know of communities of Christians who together seek to model on a small scale the sort of just peace we're striving to bring about on the grand scale. And that's the power of, of uh, engaging in peacemaking as a community. Yeah, I would I would recommend your book just for that short conversation on uh, on community and the diagrams. It was, um, I think it I think it's helpful because I I think there are a lot more people who are who can be convinced that yeah sure nonviolence is is ideal, but I don't even know how to begin to do it. And that that I think is is a very important aspect of uh, nonviolent peacemaking that maybe doesn't get fleshed out quite as much. Like you said, it's it's a lot of apologetics. Yeah. Um, so let me, let me ask you maybe what, what might be the hardest question, at least it, it has been for me. Um, and then I just have one more little, little tail end question at the end. So this is, this is the last meet here. Um, I, I really struggle with the nonviolent aspect and I guess it's similar to the Ukraine issue, you know, where, uh, we're supposed to submit to tyrants or, or, you know, not seek to overthrow them and kill them and, and whatnot. Um, but when Paul talks about, um, you know, slaves obeying your masters or, um, you know, women with their husbands, with the implication that their husbands aren't, aren't the nicest people, um, thinking about maintaining this nonviolence 
in, in that time uh, seems hard. The idea of submission and, and bearing up and, and all that, it, it seems so unjust to call people to do that. Uh, I, I remember seeing some civil rights interviews and um, you know, some of the issues that people had with, with Dr. King was that it's like, well, you know, I'm already oppressed and now you're telling me to just, you know, be, be oppressed more. Like that, that's really convenient for the ruling class to, to push nonviolence because then they get what they want and I have to just bear it. So maybe you could talk to, to that, you know, whether it's slaves, tyrants, um, you know, abusive spouses, and then maybe talk about how community helps that to be more hopeful than, than a lot of people might think, because I think there is a tie into what you just talked about and how we can bear up under oppression nonviolently. Sure. Yeah. Um, so obviously a sensitive, uh, conversation. Um, the first thought I have in response to that question is, um, this, this is a great example of why I I'm saying Holy Week is the main stage on which we can learn how Jesus wages peace, because otherwise you get those those principles that aren't rooted in actual examples, such as uh, forgive seventy times seven, right? Um, turn the other cheek, and, and so you know I'm part at my church. I'm part of a, a preaching team that gathers every Wednesday. And whoever's preaching in two Sundays delivers their sermon and everyone else gives feedback. And I can't tell you how many times when a sermon talks about forgiveness, we end up having a conversation afterwards where we say, well, you know, what if there's an abused woman sitting in the congregation? We don't want her to hear us saying, just turn the other cheek, forgive. You got to continue to let the husband physically abuse you, sexually abuse you, right? We're not saying that. Um and so we're always having these qual- these conversations about well, what qualifiers do we need to add, to, you know, to this, and and that's where I think Holy Week is really helpful. You know, on the cross, when we nail Jesus to the cross, his instinctive response is not the same as mine. You know, I probably would have cursed those who just uh, drove nails through my wrists or been trying to plead my innocence, but apart from screaming in agony, right? But the first words recorded for Jesus on the cross are Father. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. But the beautiful thing, I think, about Holy Week is we can look back at some of the other events of Holy Week and realize that for Jesus, forgiveness was never a cop-out for letting injustice just continue unabated. So when the disciples on Wednesday, so there's the scene on Wednesday, there's three brief scenes on Wednesday, uh, the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas gathering to plot, Jesus, how to arrest Jesus. We've talked about that. The last one is Judas going to start betraying Jesus. Um, but in the middle is this scene where there's this unnamed woman who breaks open an alabaster flask full of pure nard and pour, pours it over Jesus's head. And if you guys remember that scene, the, the disciples uh, start berating the woman, saying, you know, why this waste? You could have sold this money and given it to the poor. And uh, John singles out Judas as the chief complainer there, um, which I I talk about, you know, maybe some of the reasoning for that in the book. Um, But the interesting thing is Jesus doesn't turn to the woman and say, I'm sorry, my disciples just verbally accosted you, but turn the other cheek, forgive them. You know, instead, Jesus immediately steps in, chastises his disciples and defends this woman. 
So the same Jesus who says, Father, forgive them, also in this scene uh, is defending this unnamed woman from being verbally attacked. We see that as well, you know, in the temple cleansing on, on Monday, uh, this exploitation of the poor by charging these huge prices, these inflated prices for, for the animals uh, to be sacrificed, and a giant, what we would call like a processing fee, kind of like the, the PayPal processing fee or surcharge, right? That brought in so much profit, just that surcharge alone, that they were able to line the Holy of Holies with gold plating, the entire Holy of Holies, just from the profits from that surcharge. So Jesus temporarily decommercializes the temple. And he also, we always overlook this part, but it says after he drove them all out of the court of the Gentiles, in other words, the court reserved for foreigners where they were corralled within, it says that the blind and the lame came in. Those who had been excluded from the temple suddenly are brought in, right? Um, so we don't see Jesus just saying to to the Gentiles or, or standing outside and talking to the blind and lame and saying, you know, I'm sorry, this isn't right. They shouldn't be excluding you from here. They shouldn't be charging these huge prices, but forgive them. Um, instead, we see Jesus standing up for justice. So, so that's where I think Holy Week can be really helpful, where apart from Holy Week, we have these principles like forgive, and we think, well, how do we apply that, you know? Um, and I, and so I guess I would say, um, well, let me quote Dave Andrews again. He, uh, like I've said, is a mentor of mine from Australia. He's in his 70s now and has for over 40 years uh, um, grown these, these beautiful Christian communities in India, Pakistan, and now back in Australia. And I've heard him say before, in which he looks at the Trinity actually as a model for Christian community, he looks at how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate to each other. And I've heard him say before, you know, in our communities, um, absurd behavior is okay, but abusive behavior is not. And so that's something we we often said in Vancouver. We want to be a welcoming community. You know, when you look at the Trinity, uh, we see this gracious inclusivity, the welcoming of others in, may they be one as we are one, you know. Um, but it's also a safe place. And so we found in Vancouver that in order to remain a welcoming community where people needed to feel safe. And so if there was someone that came into our communities that got uh, verbally quite aggressive or started to get physically intimidating, some of the us guys in the community would take the person outside. And we'd have to say, you know, sorry, mate, uh, you're going to have to stop coming by for now at least. Um, we'll still try to meet up with you outside. You know, a few of us guys will try to take you out for coffee or something, but this needs to be a safe place. People need to know they're safe. Um, so yes, we wanted to be welcoming, but in that situation, it meant having to have a little um, exclusion in those situations. And you still try to meet with those people. Does that give a concrete example? Was that helpful? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's helpful. Now, uh, specifically, yeah, putting things in the context of um, not just proof texting, you know, forgive, but uh, yeah. seeing that there, there, there are many facets of forgiveness. Yeah. Okay, my last question that that I want to get to, and it, I guess I'm tacking it on here at the end because I don't know that it really fits exactly with everything else. Um, but it's just a, a question that I'd be interested to hear your response on. You know, in in your book, you talk about Jesus's life culminating at Passover rather than on the Day of Atonement, um, and and I know that. In my mind, up until 
uh, a couple of years ago, I had thought that you know the the Passover was all about atonement, uh, but it's not. Passover is about Exodus from from exile, um, and, and I think probably because you know the Holy Week culminates in the cross, we think of atonement. Um, do you do you think that there is some larger narrative that there's there's something significant about this being uh, Jesus's Holy Week being over Passover relating to exile as a uh, Exodus as opposed to atonement? Like what yeah. what complexities does liberation bring with with this? Derek, you said that was going to be the softball question to end it all. <laughs> this is a this is a full on question. Um, well, yeah, so it's important for us to remember that the backdrop of Holy Week is Passover, like you just said, this religious festival in which the Jewish people remember the time that God liberated them from a foreign superpower, Egypt, and now they're being oppressed again by a foreign superpower, Rome. And, and so, you know, as I talk in the book, um, uh, Passover week had a history of, of inciting all-out insurrection among the Jewish people, you know, uh, as they dreamed of, of gaining their liberation one more time. And so Rome actually ordered Pontius Pilate to leave his home on the coast, Caesarea Maritima, and bring reinforcements to uh, basically allow the threat of force to deter anyone from having any thoughts of starting an uprising. So that's the background. But but as I point out in the Friday chapter, I go back and I look at Luke chapter 4, which uh, people often refer to as Jesus's inaugural address, where he declares at the start of his years of public ministry what his mission will be all about. The Spirit of the Lord, so he, he goes to his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, un rolls the scroll of Isaiah and reads, uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he has uh, anointed me to bring good news to the poor, the oppressed, and he goes through this list. Now, um, after that, you know, I think those listening thought, he's talking about us. We're the poor ones. We're the oppressed ones. We're the ones, you know, the year of the Lord's favor is, is a reference to the year of Jubilee, where land is restored to those who rightfully own it. Um, so it says they all spoke well of him until he starts speaking again, where he, he uh, shares two examples of what I would say are two of the most nationalistic Hebrew prophets, Elijah and Elisha. He mentions two rare instances of them showing mercy to outsiders, uh, so to a, a foreign widow. But then he mentions Naaman the Syrian, and Naaman wasn't just any foreigner. He was a leader of a foreign nation's military. And so as soon as he mentions that, it says that the crowds take Jesus, they drag him outside of Nazareth, and they try to toss him over a cliff. And what I point out in that chapter is, you know, on the Day of Atonement, the the priest would take a scapegoat, he would take, have two goats, but the scapegoat, he would put his hand on the scapegoat's head and confess all the sins of Israel, thus uh, transferring those sins onto the goat. Then they would lead that goat out of the town, out of the city, into the barren wilderness to die. But on more than one occasion, that stubborn goat ventured back into the, the city. And so to to come up with a solution to that problem, a new tradition emerged where they would take the goat, take it out of the city, and throw it off the edge of a cliff to ensure that the goat wouldn't return. And so what I point out in the book is that, you know, if Jesus, if his mission was solely to come to die to save us from our sins, which is what I was taught growing up, then Jesus didn't need 33 years to accomplish that mission. Jesus could have incarnated as an adult, 
delivered a contentious message and 10 minutes later gone thrown over a cliff. And it would have been a death filled with beautiful meaning. You know, we'd have dead goats tattooed on our arms. We'd Our pastors would toss stuffed billy goats off the roof each year. Uh, we, we, Jesus would be remembered as the perfect scapegoat who took our sins upon him and died in our place. But that's not what happened. Jesus instead spent years among us teaching us, partly because we needed part of our salvation, part of our liberation, uh, was that not only did we need life, but we needed to know how to live it. So Jesus came to show us how to live, and he came to to correct our misguided assumptions about the source of life, God, right? Um, and that took years being among us. And so when Jesus dies on, on Passover as the perfect Paschal lamb, the dominant theme is that of liberation. Now, there's forgiveness there, like we already talked about the first words from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But I think we need to see that forgiveness within the larger narrative of Jesus coming to work for our liberation. Um, and so in my Friday chapter, I don't, I try not to get bogged down in arguing for one atonement theory over another. Rather, I thought of it as, as I wrote the chapter, I thought of it as, um, instead of a systematic theology, trying to unpack a boundaried theology in the sense that I wanted to articulate one boundary that if any of our uh, metaphors of how the atonement works crosses that boundary, because it's easy to stretch a metaphor, even if it's a biblical metaphor, it's easy to stretch a metaphor beyond where it was meant to go. And so in the book, I basically say, uh, if any of our understandings of how the cross saves causes us to pit the Father against the Son, then we stretch that metaphor, that that idea too far, that atonement theory too far. Uh, for the scriptures say it was because God so loved the world that he sent his Son, uh, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself on the cross. But some of our atonement theories, especially the, the penal aspect of penal substitutionary atonement, often tend to pit the Father against the Son. Jesus takes the wrath of the Father upon himself. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, it seemed like a softball for you, so <laughs> you hit it pretty well. Um, well, I just thank you so much for, for taking uh, time out of your day to, to do this. I appreciate it. I learned a lot. And um, yeah, I would recommend everyone go out and, and uh, read your book. Well, thanks, Derek. Appreciate it. It's been great to be on the podcast. All right. That's all for now. So peace. And because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. This podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.